Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. <clears throat> if you got it, say, I got it. We learned that this week, didn't we? <laughs> Beginning in verse 14, Mark chapter 9. When he, that's Jesus, came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them, with my disciples? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who was a, has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and he, when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water, to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. When he had come into the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Father, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would open our ears to hear your message. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Let me ask you a question. How many of you believe God is sovereign? Everybody believe God's sovereign? Let me give you a, an example of just how sovereign he is. I mean, we say that. We believe God's sovereign. But let me give you an example, just one that proves it, very specific to this morning. Now, I've entitled this entire uh, series through the Gospel of Mark, The Gospel. But if I were to give this message today a specific title, I would entitle it, After the Mountain. After the Mountain. See, mountaintop experiences are great, but they often present a problem for us spiritually. Because when we have a mountaintop experience, it's easy for us to then follow that mountaintop experience with a valley experience. And I was reminded of that happening very often as I studied that, this passage this week. Now, here, here's where the sovereignty of God makes its appearance. I began preaching through the Gospel of Mark in February of this year. Okay? February. Today marks my 28th message in the Gospel of Mark. 
So we've been, I've been preaching through it other than a couple Sundays for Mother's Day and that kind of thing. Uh, 28 Sundays so far this year. So you may ask the question, well, pastor, okay, why does that prove the sovereignty of God? All right, watch this. Two weeks ago, before revival, I preached on the transfiguration of Jesus. How many remember that? That's the beginning part of chapter 9. That was a mountaintop experience for Peter, James, and John, who were up on the mountain. Well, now we've been through revival. We finished revival this week. And for many, I, I know it was a mountaintop experience. It was great, wasn't it? Amen? So here it is. Listen now. This is the sovereignty of God. God knew exactly where I would be in the Gospel of Mark today, long before I began preaching through Mark in February. Are you with me? God knew that this message I'm preaching today would follow revival. That's how sovereign God is. I didn't know where I would be in the book of Mark today, the week after revival. I just preach it passage to passage as it comes along. I didn't have a plan to be in this passage this day. So what I'm telling you is God is sovereign Because he knew back in February exactly where I needed to be today. In fact, he knew it long before that. Amen? So this message is right where God wanted it to be, following revival. So are you ready to hear it? Three people are. Okay. Well, the rest of you listen anyways. Okay? So revival was a mountaintop experience for, for a lot of folks. Now, I, I'm sure probably not everybody did, but uh, mountaintop experience. But I want to tell you that we need to beware of mountaintop experiences. They're, they're great. They're good. Glad we have them whenever we have them. But we need to recognize that our enemy, who's that? Satan, the devil. Our enemy wants nothing more than to squeeze out what we've been able to take in this week during revival. Satan is our enemy. He's always seeking, Jesus said, to steal, kill, and destroy. And as Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8, he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So don't ever think the devil's not interested in destroying your mountaintop experience. So I believe this passage serves as a warning for anyone coming off a mountaintop experience. We have them from time to time. Hopefully some folks had one this week. But these are some things we need to be reminded of, remember, after the mountain. So let's see what they are. Here's the first one. Some have not been on the mountain. Some have not been on the mountain. Look at verse 14. And when he came to the disciples, where had he been? Jesus. On the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. When he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. So there was a great multitude who had not been on the mountain with Jesus and Peter and James and John and Elijah and Moses. That included nine of the disciples who didn't go up there with Peter, James, and John, were not invited, by the way, by Jesus. It also included the scribes. Now, who are the scribes? The scribes were guys that um, copied the scripture and taught the scripture. They're the ones who sat there in candlelight or daylight, if it were day, and copied the scripture by hand. So they had not been on the mountain. In fact, I want to tell you this. The only mountaintop experience the scribes ever had was patting themselves on, their, on the back for their self-righteousness. That was their mountaintop experience. So we've got to remember when we have a mountaintop experience, everyone has not had the same experience that we've had. Even those of us 
who were here this week in revival, we may have had a, a mountaintop experience, and our mountaintop experience is going to be different than even somebody else's mountaintop experience. But even probably some people who were here didn't have a mountaintop experience. They enjoyed the revival, they enjoyed Kenny's music, and they enjoyed Harold's preaching, but they wouldn't say it was a mountaintop experience. So what we've got to remember is some have not been on the mountain, even though we have. Point number two. Arguments are easier in the valley. Now watch this in, in verse 14, end of verse 14. He said the scribes were disputing with them. See, when we're in the valleys of, li uh, valleys of life, it's easy to get our focus off the Lord. Would anybody agree with me? I mean, when we're going through storms and hard times or whatever it is. When we're in the valleys of life, our focus can get off the Lord. And when our focus is not right, you know what, you know what can happen easily? We begin to argue. We begin, we begin to dispute with one another. You know, as we, as we read the Gospels, we see the disciples arguing with each other a lot, don't you? I mean, in this text, they argued about why they couldn't cast out this demon from this boy. We've seen previously that they argued over the fact that they forgot to bring bread on their trip across the Sea of Galilee. Even though they had a bunch of baskets full left over from the feeding of a large group of people. We know in another passage they argued about this woman, Mary probably, who broke an alabaster jar of expensive perfume and anointed Jesus with it. Remember the story? You know what the disciples asked in that story? Or what they said? Why, what a waste. They said this perfume could have been sold for a lot of money and given to the poor. So they argued over that. In next week's passage, well, no, two weeks from now, two weeks from now's passage, um, they're going to argue over who's the greatest. Who's the greatest preacher? Who's the greatest disciple? Who's the most humble? Of course, that's Peter. We know that, right? <laughs> so they argue. And we are all aware that the church of the Lord Jesus argues about a lot of things. Would you agree with me? Um, I said it a minute ago. I hope you heard it. That when we get our when we get in the valleys of life, sometimes our focus gets off the Lord. And when our focus gets off the Lord, you know what happens? We find it real easy to argue, to dispute. Now we may argue over a lot of things. We might argue. Churches argue over music. How oh, that's been going on for a long time. I've told you the reason for that. Correct. When when God threw Lucifer and a third of the angels out of heaven, they landed in the choir loft. Right? A, a lot of people believe Lucifer was the leader of worship in heaven before he got kicked out. So Lucifer likes music. And he likes to cause us disruption over music. You know my opinion about music. I like music. But what about church music? You know my opinion of church music? Has a good purpose. But its number one purpose is to point us to God. I like, I like some, some modern contemporary church music. I want to tell you, one of the problems with a lot of modern contemporary church music is that it focuses on us and not on God. You just pay attention to the words of a lot of songs that are sung in churches and on the radio, and the focus is on me, 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 me. Bless me, bless me, bless me, and not on God. We're, folks, this isn't in my message. This is free, okay? <laughs> Worship is not about you and me. Amen. I need to say that again. Worship is not about you and me. Amen. I guess I need to say it again. Worship is not about you and me. Amen. Who's it about? It's about God. 
He's the one we're here to worship. He's the audience. We're not the audience. He's the audience. We're, we're all participants glorifying him, lifting him up, praising him, singing him, worshiping. And when we get in this thought of worship is about me and, oh, I want to be blessed and I want to sing what I like and I want to feel good when I leave, then we've missed the total purpose of understanding what worship is about. So when we get in the valley, it's easy to argue. Sometimes we argue over church decisions. One of the things we've really messed up in the church, God didn't mess it up. We messed it up. And especially in America, because we like to say this, the church is a democracy. Are you ready for the truth now? Say, yeah, pastor, let me hear it. The church is not a democracy. The church is a theocracy. It's God's church. Jesus is the head. And he rules, or he's supposed to. So get over this idea that who, who does the pastor think he is making that decision without us voting on it? I don't see anywhere in the Bible about a vote ever being taken in a church. Anybody else? Can you show it to me? I mean, the closest thing they ever came was when they elected deacons in Acts chapter 6. And the apostle said, well, you nominate seven men, like we're doing with the advisory team. Oh, but there was no vote taken. You, you nominate these men. That's what we're doing. Y'all get to nominate who you want to be on the advisory team. By the way, Brother Harold and I were talking about this week. He says, I think I can prove that deacons were never meant to be uh, a continuous office in the church. I don't know about that. That's what he said. But, but let me say this. We don't have deacons, at least right now. We may someday. But let, let me tell you this about deacons. And some of you guys in here have been deacons. Nowhere in the Bible, you can't find it, nowhere in the Bible where deacons tell the pastor what to do. Amen. Deacons are servants. In fact, the word diakonos, from which we get deacon, means servant. Uh, the best that we could put up where deacons had any authority was when they started them in Acts chapter 6, that they had, the, the, they had oversight of the the, the uh, benevolence ministry. That's what they were assigned to do. You, you make sure everybody gets, all the widows and all that, get the right amount of food. Make sure that everything's done right. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the, the deacons run the church. A whole lot of Baptist churches need to find that out. Some of them real close by. So we argue over church decisions. Now, uh, I was talking with uh, Harold and, and his wonderful wife, Marilyn, at lunch the other day, and we were talking about kind of stuff at, at Hope Fellowship, and, and uh, Marilyn, Marilyn made this comment. It's a dictatorship. I said, no, 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 it's not a dictatorship. I'm not a dictator. Furthest thing from it. Don't even think that way. But it is a pastor-led church, which we believe here at Hope Fellowship is the way it's supposed to be. But when we get in the valley, it's easy to argue over church decisions. You don't get what you want. You know, sometimes if we do take a vote, sometimes you're on the losing end of that stick, right? Sometimes you might be against something that the church votes for. How are we supposed to handle that? Well, I need to find me another church. Is that how we're supposed to handle it? Again, we're not a democracy, but how do we handle it in the United States when somebody gets elected that we didn't vote for and didn't want elected? Do we find another country? No. Some, have tried. So some have tried. Some may want to. 
They don't always get, okay, I don't want to harp on that too long. That's been long enough. All right. So we can argue over a lot, and we can argue over insignificant things. Have you ever been in a church meeting where they argued over something insignificant? I mean, something that really doesn't, like the color of the paint. You know, we're going to build a building here next year. Not here, over there, but we're going to build a building next year. Is there going to be any arguments over the color of the paint? Now, you may not argue over it, but you may walk in and see a color and go, well, I, don't, I just don't like that color. Well, you didn't pick it. By the way, who made all the colors? God. Not Sherwin-Williams. So God's happy with any color, amen? Well, see, that would be a very, wouldn't that be a very insignificant thing to argue over as a church body? The color of paint, as if it really makes any difference. Do we tell you what color to paint your house? I'll guarantee you if I came into some of your houses, I'd say, I don't like that color. I mean, Denise even some, sometimes says, I don't like that color. We've had that color too long. We've got to change that color. So even though she liked it one time, she doesn't like it now. So we've got to change the color. That's how it works in our house. Amen? So we argue over insignificant. And what happens is we get our focus off. Our, our focus is not right. And the devil loves to get us arguing over trivial things right after a mountaintop experience. So I just want to say to you, don't, don't let him do it. When he starts pinching you, say, oh, get thee behind me, Satan. We've got to keep our focus right. All right, here's thought number three. I spent way too much time on that one. Whew, wow. God must be wanting somebody to hear that today. I don't know who it was. The crowd wants to know what it was like. Go verse 15. Immediately when they saw him, the crowd, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. See, there's always a group of people who were not on the mountain, whatever it was, wherever it was, they want to know what it was like to be on the mountain. And sometimes we can explain it. Well, let me tell you how great revival was to me. I mean, I'm, God, you know, this is somebody saying, well, I'm telling you, God really spoke to me. God dealt with my life. God, God did, God did, you know. And we can try to explain it, but sometimes, maybe a lot of times, it's hard to explain what it was like on the mountain. Uh, a number of years ago, I was on staff in a church, and we had a great service. I mean, it was, a, it was just one of those services where God moved in, and, I mean, people were saved. and I mean, it was just one of those awesome. You ever been in one of those where you're just like, wow. And we, I remember talking with somebody that next week, and they, had, they hadn't been at church that Sunday. They missed it. And they said, um, well, we'll have to go and watch it. It was video. We'll have to go and watch it. And another guy that was on staff with me said, you can't get the Holy Spirit on tape. You can't get the Holy Spirit on tape. See, and you could go watch that service and get some sense of what it was like. But see, you, you just got to be there. Because you can't get the Spirit on tape. What's the point? Not everyone is going to have the same experience on the mountain. Even, everybody, even people that were on the mountain are not going to have the same experience. So don't worry about it. Just enjoy what you experienced. I mean, do you remember when they were on the mountain coming down? He told Peter, James, and John, now don't tell anybody about this, what, what you just experienced, until after I'm raised from the dead. Remember he said that? Maybe Jesus said that because we just need to hold on to our mountaintop experience until someone else has one, and then they realize, oh, man, that's, that's good. All right, point number four. Jesus knows all about it. Look at verse 16. He asked, his, he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with my disciples? 
Do you think Jesus didn't know what they were arguing about? Did Jesus know what they were arguing about? Yeah. So why did he ask them the question? Why did he ask the scribes, what are you, what are you disputing about with my disciples? I think he wanted to see what their perspective was. The scribes, the lost people. Um, I think Jesus wanted to know what the scribes were thinking. Now, not that he didn't know. He did. He knows everything, right? He knew what they were thinking, but he wanted to reveal their heart. Again, not because he didn't know their heart. He does. But because we, they needed to, and we need to see what's in our own hearts. Now, that's an important truth that we need to learn. God knows our hearts. Amen? Always. 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 But we need to know our own hearts. And we need to acknowledge where our hearts are. I thought about in Genesis when Adam and Eve uh, sinned, and they went and hid, and God came looking for them. Remember the story? And uh, we just, uh, oh, maybe we didn't die. God says, Adam, where art thou? Remember that? Where are you, Adam? Did God not know where he was? knew exactly where he was. So why does he ask the question, where are you? Because Adam, God wanted Adam to understand where he was, his relationship with God. So Jesus says, um, what are you arguing about? What were they arguing about? Well, we're going to look at it in the next point, next few verses. But I want you to see this. God wants us to know what's in our own hearts. He already knows. But sometimes we don't really think about what's in our own heart. Jeremiah the prophet says our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can understand it? He wants us to know our own hearts, even though he already knows. All right, here, here it is. Number five, there is no substitute for Jesus. Verse 17. And one of the crowd answered, said, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is a mute spirit. Seizes him, throws him down, foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth. Brought him to your disciples. They couldn't cast it out. Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, how, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. There is no substitute for Jesus. You know, people try all kinds of things to try to fix their problems in life. Would you agree? Uh, I mean, uh, some people go to counseling. That's good. I'm, I'm not against counseling. I've done plenty of counseling. Been to counseling myself. But can I tell you something? The greatest counselor on this earth cannot fix your problems. Some people try drugs or alcohol to fix their problems. Most of the time, those are masking their problems, not fixing their problems. Somebody said one time when someone said, well, I'm trying to, they were drinking, they said, I'm trying to drown my problems and he said, guess what? Your problems can swim. Some people think positive thinking will fix their problems. You know, just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and everything will be good. Enjoy your best life now. Positive thinking. Some people try religion. Well, I'm going to try this religion, I'm going to try that. I, I talked to it when we used to do some mission work in New York. I remember talking to a guy, and I was trying to witness to him, and he said, oh, man, Barry, I, I've, I've studied all of them. I've studied all. i got so many books in my house. I've studied all the religions. I said, why are you studying all of them? He said, I'm trying to figure out which one works. So I want to tell you something, folks. There is no remedy for our problems 
until we find Jesus. It's only in a right relationship with him and nothing else that will fix our issues. Let me show you a couple of verses. Hebrews 7, 25. Look at this verse. Therefore, I can't even see that back there. My context must be not good today. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. I love that verse. He is able. Not the counselor, not the drugs, not the alcohol, not the positive thinking, not religion. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. How about this little verse over in Jude, verse 24? There's only one chapter. Not to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. I like that, don't you? <laughs> and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Do, do Christian people, do saved people still have issues? If you don't believe that, I'd just like to tell you about a few. <laughs> See, we all do, right? Getting saved doesn't deliver you from all problems. See, that's false doctrine. Anybody that preaches and teaches that, that if you get saved, if you come to Christ, all your problems disappear, just walk away and don't believe another thing that person says. Because we all know from reality, and even they know it from reality, that ain't true. That all your problems disappear when you get saved. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this, that our issues, our problems in life, large or small, don't really matter once we find Jesus Christ because in the big picture, finding him is what matters. Look at this verse in Romans 8, 18. I love this verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. David read it this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, all the stuff that Paul went through. And Paul's the one that writes this, and he says, I, I, it's not even worth mentioning it in the same sentence as the fact that you're going to go to heaven when you die if you're saved. Do we go through problems? Absolutely. Do we go through valleys? Yes, we do. Do we deal with issues even as Christians? Oh, yes. But none of it's worth talking about when we think about that we're going to leave it all behind one of these days. Amen? Amen. All right, number six. I got a lot of points today. Here it is. The enemy is powerful, but not omnipotent. Look at this, verse 20. They brought him to Jesus. When he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. He, did, he, he, he fell to the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus says, how long has this been happening to him? The dad says, well, since he's a little kid. Verse 22. And often he has thrown him into the fire and into the water to what? Destroy him, to kill him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything, he didn't know who he was talking to, did he? If you can do anything, that's what he said to Jesus. If you can do anything, <laughs> can I tell you something? Jesus is the only one who could do anything to help this boy. Are you with me? See, this boy was in serious trouble. I mean, can you imagine when the, this, this, uh, this demon attacked him and throw him into the fire or into the water trying to drown him? Can, can you imagine the serious trouble this boy is in? I mean, Satan had this boy in his grip. How many of you know Satan's powerful? Are angels powerful? Uh, Harold preached on angels Monday night. Are angels powerful? Yeah, absolutely. And archangels are even more powerful. And Lucifer, Satan, was an archangel. So he was one of the big guys, right? Well, he, he doesn't use his power for good anymore, but he hadn't lost his power. 
He hadn't lost his power. In fact, the Bible says that God has allowed Satan to be the prince of this world, at least for a time. Here's what it says in Ephesians 2.2. 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the, read it, prince of the power of the air. Read it again. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Who's that talking about? Satan. He's the prince of this world because God's allowed him to be that for a time. Satan's powerful. Don't you ever forget it. But don't forget this. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. That belongs to God alone. Let me show you some great verses. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. Flip over there for just a second. Luke 10. Are you there? Say we're there. Verse 17, then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Verse 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heaven. He's talking about when Satan was thrown out of heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Mm. How about this one? Acts 26, verse 18. I will deliver you from the Jewish people. This is speaking to Paul. As well as from the Gentiles, to which I now send you to open their eyes, in order to turn them from darkness to light, and watch this, and from the power of Satan to God. So, Satan has power, but he's not omnipotent. How about this one? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Uh-oh, oh, we've got to turn over there again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Satan is powerful, but he's not omnipotent. Greater is he that is in us, than he that is in the world. Number seven, we're getting there. I got 15 minutes, hold on. <laughs> Faith is the key to spiritual deliverance. Look back at our text, verse 23 and 24. Jesus said to him, this dad, who said, if you can do anything. <laughs> Jesus says, if you believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my own belief. <laughs> Have you ever felt like that? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. See, there are times when our faith is strong. Would you agree? And then there are times when our faith just seems like it disappears with the wind. Now, there's no doubt that faith is needed in every aspect of the Christian life. It's a walk of faith. The just shall live by faith. So it's, a, it's needed in every aspect of the Christian life. But I want to tell you this. Faith is vital for spiritual deliverance. And what is the greatest aspect of spiritual deliverance? Is it healing? Everybody say No. Is it deliverance from some demon? Is it direction in my life? No. The greatest aspect of spiritual deliverance is salvation. Most important thing, salvation. We read it in, in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Listen, don't rejoice that you have power over the demons. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. 
What's Jesus saying? The most important thing, the most important thing about spiritual deliverance is that you get saved. Because you can get healed and still die. You can get delivered from a demon and still die. God can give you direction in your life and you can still get lost. But if you get saved, how about Romans 3.28? Look at this great verse. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith and not from the deeds of the law. How are we saved? We've been studying this on Wednesday nights in Galatians. How are we saved? By keeping the law? By obeying rules? How are we saved? By grace through faith. That's what Ephesians 2.8 says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. So key uh, to the spiritual deliverance is faith. We've got to have faith. Got to believe. Got to trust. Not do. Not do. Not the works of the law. Faith. Got two more. Here we go. Death is required in order to live. Wow. That's profound. Look at verse 25. Jesus saw the people came running. He rebuked the unclean spirit, deaf and dumb spirit. I command you, come out of him, enter him no more. The spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now watch this. Death is required in order to live. Do you remember what Jesus said back in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35? Look at this. Just flip back a page. He called the people to himself and with his disciples also, and he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Death is required in order to live. Look at John 12, 25. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Death is required in order to live. You see, if we're going to receive eternal life, we have to die first. In other words, we have to surrender the idea that we can somehow make ourselves right with God. That's dying to ourselves. That I can somehow, through my own effort, my own goodness, my own righteousness, make myself right with God. Jesus says that we must give up our life in order to receive his life. Is that what he says? That's exactly what he said. I've said it many times. We cannot just add Jesus to our life. That's what a lot of people try to do. Well, I'm just going to keep living my life, and I'm going to add Jesus just as an insurance policy. No. Jesus, David talked about this in Sunday school. Jesus cannot be our co-pilot. He must be the pilot, right? He must be in full control. We have to surrender our position. We have to slide over and let him slide in. To the pilot position. And that requires us to die to ourself, to give up our own life. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever reached that point in your life where you realized, I can't do this? I can't make myself right with God. I can't be good enough to do that. You know my thing with people is now when I say, how you doing? They say, good. And I say, oh, no, you're not doing good. Said it to a couple this morning. You're not doing good. What? No, you're not doing good. Because there is none good, no, not one, Romans chapter 3 says. We're not doing good. 
No, you're doing fine, marvelous, wonderful, exceedingly well, not good. See, we've got to, we've got to reach that point in our life that I, I can't be good enough to make myself acceptable to God. And until you do that, until you reach that point, you will never receive his life as long as you're holding on to yours. All right, here's the last, last thought. Prayer changes things. Can I hear an amen? amen? Verse 28, when he'd come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast out that demon? He said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. By the way, uh, the most uh, best translation, best versions, leave out fasting. From the original text, fasting's not there. It doesn't matter. I'm not making a big point of it. Fasting's a good thing. We all fasted before revival, or a lot of us did. But Jesus basically says, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Prayer changes things. Prayer is powerful. And I'm sure that all of us, we could take time today and we could talk about how many times prayer has changed things in our lives. Would you say amen? We've seen God answer prayers. And we know we should pray. And yet, we don't often pray like we should. Would you agree with that? Sometimes we just try to solve our own issues. Sometimes we're like this, God, I got this one. Oh, okay. I, and sometimes I think God says, okay, big boy, let's see how you do. Huh? You reckon God does that sometimes? Sometimes we leave God out of the picture until we're in deep trouble. And then we finally decide to pray. Again, David talked about that in Sunday school. Compare your prayer life when everything's going good and when everything's tipsy-turvy in your life. When do you pray more? Anybody remember that Carrie Underwood song? Jesus, take the wheel! Huh? When did she pray that? When that car's out of control. That's when we all are good prayers. We're all good prayers when life's out of control. But remember, we're supposed to give him control at the very beginning. Carrie Underwood's song would not be true if you got out of the pilot seat when you were supposed to. I wonder how many millions she made off that song right there. See, we've got to be people of prayer. Why? Why, why does God want us to pray? He know, Jesus even said it. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to string these long prayers together. He said, because your Father already knows the things you need even before you pray it. Is that true? God knows it before we pray it? So why does he say pray? Because prayer changes things. Most of all, Prayer changes us. Because, see, when we really get down to praying like we should, it's not telling God what he should do. It's saying, God, I'm okay with whatever you do. Hey, that was good. That was hot off the press. I'd never thought about that before. <laughs> I mean, isn't that that's where prayer should get us? God, I'm not telling you how to handle stuff. Anybody see my uh, thought of the week this week in the newsletter? Worrying is arrogant because God knows what he's doing. See, prayer should not be, I'm going to convince God what I want him to do. Prayer should be, I surrender to whatever he wants to do. See, that's the, that, other than just talking to God, building my relationship with God, that's the ultimate point of prayer is that I get on his agenda. Not I pull him over on mine. 
Prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Do you remember what James 5.16 says? The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I like the way the New Living Translation translates it. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. So folks, I want to tell you this. Pray when you feel like it. Pray when you don't feel like it. Especially pray when you don't feel like it. Pray when you need something. And pray when you don't need anything. Just thank God. But pray. Pray. Prayer changes things. Jesus said, this can only happen by prayer. Now, I don't know how God's spoken to you this morning. I know God planned this message for today. I don't know who it was for. Maybe more than one. I hope for more than one. But God's sovereign and he planned this message for today. So however God has spoken to you, however he is speaking to you, I want to encourage you to listen to him. Now, if you need to be saved and that's what he's speaking to you, and you're understanding today, you know what? I, I really have realized I can't be good enough to make myself acceptable to God. And so today you realize you need to be saved. Can I say this to you? Don't put it off. Paul said in Corinthians, today is the day of salvation. If God's speaking to you in this moment, this is when you need to get saved because you might not have another opportunity. Boy, we had some great stories about that from Dr. Hunter this week. By the way, you can listen to any of those messages on our website. Go listen to them. So if you need to be saved, don't put it off. Get saved today. If you need to come to this altar and pray, we had a lot of people at the altar this week, and I appreciate that. I thank you for coming. But you can come to this altar any week, any Sunday, and pray. If God's leading you to join Hope Fellowship, what are you waiting for? Why put it off? Do it. So whatever God is speaking to your heart, do what he's leading you to do. All right, let's pray as our musicians come. Father, as you've been speaking, continue to speak. And I pray that we'll do today whatever you are leading us to do, whatever it is. In Jesus' name, amen.